Volume One, Chapter Fourteen of Rob Roy. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Mike Harris. Rob Roy by Sir Walter Scott, Volume One, Chapter Fourteen. Yon lamp, its line of quivering light shoots from my lady's bower. But why should beauty's lamp be bright at midnight's lonely hour? An old ballad. The mode of life at Osbaldistone Hall was too uniform to admit of description. Diana Vernon and I enjoyed much of our time in our mutual studies. The rest of the family killed theirs in such sports and pastimes as suited the seasons, in which we also took a share. My uncle was a man of habits, and by habit became so much accustomed to my presence and mode of life that Upon the whole, he was rather fond of me than otherwise. I might probably have risen yet higher in his good graces had I employed the same arts for that purpose which were used by Rashley, who, availing himself of his father's disinclination to business, had gradually insinuated himself into the management of his property. But although I readily gave my uncle the advantage of my pen and my arithmetic so often as he desired to correspond with a neighbor or settle with a tenant, and was, in so far, a more useful inmate in his family than any of his sons, yet I was not willing to oblige Sir Hildebrand by relieving him entirely from the management of his own affairs, so that while the good knight admitted that Nevoy Frank was a steady, handy lad, he seldom failed to remark in the same breath that he did not think he should have missed Rashley so much as he was like to do. As it is particularly unpleasant to reside in a family where we are at variance with any part of it, I made some efforts to overcome the ill-will which my cousins entertained against me. I exchanged my laced hat for a jockey-cap, and made some progress in their opinion. I broke a young colt in a manner which carried me further into their good graces, a bet or two opportunely lost to Dickon, and an extra health pledged with Percy, placed me on an easy and familiar footing with all the young squires, except Thorncliffe. I have already noticed the dislike entertained against me by this young fellow, who, as he had rather more sense, had also a much worse temper than any of his brethren. Sullen, dogged, and quarrelsome, he regarded my residence at Osbaldistone Hall as an intrusion, and viewed with envious and jealous eyes my intimacy with Diana Vernon, whom the effect proposed to be given to a certain family compact assigned to him as an intended spouse. That he loved her could scarcely be said, at least without much misapplication of the word, but he regarded her as something appropriated to himself, and resented internally the inference which he knew not how to prevent or interrupt. I attempted a tone of conciliation towards Thorncliffe on several occasions, but he rejected my advances with a manner about as gracious as that of a growling mastiff, when the animal shuns and resents a stranger's attempts to caress him. I therefore abandoned him to his ill-humour, and gave myself no further trouble about the matter. Such was the footing upon which I stood with the family at Osbaldistone Hall, but I ought to mention another of its inmates with whom I occasionally held some discourse. This was Andrew Fairservice, the gardener, who, since he had discovered that I was a Protestant, rarely suffered me to pass him without proffering his Scotch mull with a social pinch. There were several advantages attending this courtesy. In the first place, it was made at no expense, for I never took snuff, and secondly it afforded an excellent apology to Andrew, who was not particularly fond of hard labour, for laying aside his spade for several minutes, 
But above all, these brief interviews gave Andrew an opportunity of venting the news he had collected, or the satirical remarks which his shrewd northern humour suggested. "'I am saying, sir,' he said to me one evening, with a face obviously charged with intelligence, "'I have been down at the Trenley Knoll. "'Well, Andrew, and I suppose you heard some news at the alehouse?' "'No, nah, sir, I never gang to the alehouse. "'That's unless me neighbour was to give me a pint or the like of that. "'But to gang there on Anne's own coat-tail is a waste of precious time and hard-won siller. "'But I was doing at the Trinley Knoll, as I was saying, "'about a wee bit business of my ain with Matty Simpson, "'that wants a four-pit or twa peers that'll never be missed in the high-house. "'And when we were at the thrangest of our bargain, who should come in but Pate McCready, the travelling merchant? Peddler, I suppose you mean? And as your honour likes to ca him. But it's a creditable calling, and a gain for, and has been lying in use for our folk. Pate's a faraway cousin of mine, and we were blithe to meet with him another. And you went and had a jug of ale together, I suppose, Andrew, for heaven's sake, cut short your story. By the way, by the way, you Southerns are eh, in such a hurry. "'And this is something concerns yourself, and ye you want take patience to hear, yell. "'Deal a drop o' yell did paid offer me. "'But Matty gave us baith a drop can skim milk. "'And ain't on her thick-head chonics, and that was as what and raw as a divot. "'Ah, for the bonny griddle cakes of the north.' "'And Saver sat down and took out our clavers. "'I wish you'd take them out just now. "'Pray tell me the news, if you have got any worth telling, for I can't stop here all night.' Then if you maun hate the folk in London are a clean wood about this bit job in the north here. Clean wood? What's that? Oh, just a real daft. Neither to hod nor to bind a hurdy-gurdy. Clean through either the deal's own jock wobster. But what does all this mean? Or what business have I with the devil or Jack Webster? Humph, said Andrew, looking extremely knowing. It's just because... "'Just that the derdoms are bought yon man's portmanteau.' "'Whose portmanteau? Or what do you mean?' Oh, "'Just the man Morris's that he said he lost yonder. "'But if it's no your honour's affair as little as it is mine, "'I'm going to lose this gracious evening.' "'And as if suddenly seized with a violent fit of industry, "'Andrew began to labour most diligently.' My attention, as the crafty knave had foreseen, was now arrested, and unwilling at the same time to acknowledge any particular interest in that affair, by asking direct questions, I stood waiting till the spirit of voluntary communication should again prompt him to resume his story. Andrew dug on manfully, and spoke at intervals, but nothing to the purpose of Mr. MacReady's news. And I stood and listened, cursing him in my heart, and desirous at the same time to see how long his humour of contradiction would prevail over his desire of speaking upon the subject which was obviously uppermost in his mind. "'I'm trenching up the spotty grass, and I'm gone to saw some missagona beans. They wouldn't want them to their swine's flesh, I's warrant. Muckle good may do them. And sick like dung as the grave has gained me. It should be wheats to-day, or aitin' at the worst oat. And it's pays dirt as fizzinless as shucky stains.' But the huntsman guides as he likes about the stable-yard, and he's selled the best of the litter, I's warrant. Ah, but howsoever we mun a loss a turn of the Saturday at e'en, for the water's sair broken, 
and if there's a fair day in seven Sunday, sure to come and lick it up. Uh, howsomever, I'm no denying that it may settle, if it be heaven's will, till Monday morning. And what's the use of my breaking my back at this rate? I think I'll yen a hame, for yon's the curfew, and as they ca' there a jolin in bell. Accordingly, applying both his hands to his spade, he pitched it upright in the trench which he had been digging, and, looking at me with the air of superiority of one who knows himself possessed of important information, which he may communicate or refuse at his pleasure, pulled down the sleeves of his shirt, and walked slowly toward his coat, which lay carefully folded upon a neighboring garden seat. I must pay the penalty of having interrupted the tiresome rascal, thought I to myself, and even gratify Mr. Fairservice by taking his communication on his own terms. Then, raising my voice, I addressed him. And, after all, Andrew, what are these London news you had from your kinsman, the travelling merchant? Uh, the peddler, your honour means, retorted Andrew, but cah him what you will, there are great convenience in a countryside that scanta borough towns like this Northumberland. That's no the case now in Scotland. There's the kingdom of Fife, frae Coleros to the east, huh? It's just like a great combined city. See many royal boroughs yoked on end to end, like ropes of ingans, and with their high streets and their booths, nae doubt, and their crames and houses of stain and lime and forestairs. Kirkcaldy the cellar is langer than any town in England. Oh, I dare say it's all very splendid and very fine, but... You were talking of the London news a little while ago, Andrew. I replied, Andrew, eh, but I didna think your honour cared to hear about them. Howsomever, he continued, grinning a ghastly smile, Pate MacCready does say that they are sair mistrist abound in their Parliament House about this robbery of Mr. Morris, or whatever they call it, chill. In the House of Parliament, Andrew, how came they to mention it there? Oh, that's just what I said to Pate. If it like your honour, I'll tell you the very words. It's no worth taking a lie for the matter. Pate, said I, what to do with the lords and lairds and gentles at London with the carol and his waddies? When we had a Scotch parliament, Pate, says I, and dealer acts there thrappies than a us hot. They sat doosly down and made laws for a hale country and kinrick and never fash their beards about things that were competent to the judge ordinary of the bones. But I think, said I, that if a kailwife bowed off her neighbour as much, they would have it tway some of them into the Parliament House of London. It's just, said I, amist as silly as our old daft laird here and his gomerals of sons, with his huntsmen and his hounds and his hunting cattle and horns, riding hail days after a bit beast that went away sacks pounds when they had catched it. "'You argued most admirably, Andrew,' said I, willing to encourage him to get into the marrow of his intelligence. "'And, and what said Pate?' "'Oh, he said, what better could be expected of a wee pock puttin' English folk? But as to the robbery, it's like that when they're at the thrang of their wig and tory wark, and can ain another, like unhanged blackguards. Up gets a lang-tongued shield, and he says, that a the north of England were rank Jacobites, and, quietly, he wasn't far wrong, maybe, and that they had levied a maist open war, and the king's messenger had been stopped and rubbit on the highway, and that the best blood in Northumberland had been at the doing of it, and mickle go ten of and money-valuable papers, 
and that there was ne'er a dress to be gotten by remede of law for the first justice of the peace that the rubbed man gaed to. He had fund the twaloons that did the deed bearling and drinking with him. Oh, but they! And the justice took the word of the tain for the comparance of the tither, and that they ain gave him a leg bail, and the honest man that had lost his siller was fain to leave the country for fear that war had come of it. Can this really be true? said I. It's whereas it's as true as that his elwand is a yard long, and so it is just baiting an inch, that it may meet the English measure. And when the child had said his warrest, there was a terrible cry for names, and out come he with his man Morris's name, and your uncles, and Squire Inglewood's, and other folks beside, looking sly at me. And then another dragon a shield got up on the other side, and said, "'What they accuse the best gentleman in the land on the oath of a broken coward?' For it's like that Morris had been drummed out of the army over a rinning awa in Flinders. And he said it was like the story had been made up between the minister and him, or even he had left London, and that, if there was to be a search warrant granted, he thought the Sillerton was to be found some gate near to St. James' Palace. Ah, well, they trailed up Morris to their bar, as they caught, to see what he could say to the job, but the folk that were gin him gave him sicken off a throgan about his rinning away, and about all the ill he had ever done or said for all the fore part of his life, that Patty said he looked mere like a dead man than a living, and they couldn't get a word of sense out of him, for downright fright at their growling and routing. He maun be a saft sap with a head nae better than a fuzzy frosted turnip, that would have taen a handle of him to Sir Andrew Fairservice out of his tale. And how did it all end, Andrew? Did your friend happen to learn? Oh, ha, ha, For as his walk is in this country, paint but off his journey for the space of a week or thereby, because it would be acceptable to his customers to bring down the news. It's just a gate aft like moonshine and water. The fellow that began it drew in his horns, and said that though he believed the man had been rubbed, yet he acknowledged he might have been mistaken about the particulars. And then the other shield got up and said he cared now whether Morris was robbed or no provided it was not to become a stain on only gentlemen's honour and reputation, especially in the north of England, for, said he before them, I come frae the north myself, and I care in how boodle wha kens it. And this is what they ca explaining. The tane gives up a bit, and the tither gives up a bit, and are friends again. Ah, well, after the Commons Parliament had tug it and rivet and rugged at Morris and his robbery till they were tired out, the Lord's Parliament, they behoved to hae their spell out. In pure old Scotland's Parliament, they say, say together, cheek by chowl, and then they didna need to hae the same blethers twice o'er again. But till their lordships went with as muckle teeth and goodwill, as if the matter had been a speck and a span new. For by there was something said about Anne Campbell, that sold had been concerned in the robbery mere or less, and that he would have had a warrant for the Duke of Argyle as a testimonial of his character. And this put MacCallan Moore's beard in a blaze, as good reason there was. And he got up on an unco bang, and guarded them a look about them, and what ram it even down their throats. There was never any of the Campbells, but was as white-wise, warlike, and worthy trust as old Sir John the Graham. Now, if your honour's sure ye arena a draps blood akin to a Campbell, 
as I am nain myself. Say far as I can count my kin, or I had it counted for me. I'll give ye my mind on that matter. You may be assured I have no connection whatever with any gentleman of that name. Oh, then we may speak it quietly among ourselves. There's a baith good and bad, o' the Campbells, like other names. But this Macallum Moore has an uncou sway, and say baith, among the grit folk at London even now, for he cannot precisely be said to belang to any of the twa sides of em, said deal any of em likes to quarrel with him. See, they invoted Morris's tale of false calumnous libel, as they can't, and if he hadna gained them leg bail, and was likely to attain the air on the pillory for lease-making. So speaking, honest Andrew collected his dibbles, spades, and hoes, and threw them into a wheelbarrow, leisurely, however, and allowed me full time to put any further questions which might occur to me before he trundled them off to the tool-house, there to repose during the ensuing day. I thought it best to speak out at once, lest this meddling fellow should suppose there were more weighty reasons for my silence than actually existed. I should like to see this countryman of yours, Andrew, and to hear his news from himself directly. You have probably heard that I had some trouble from the impertinent folly of this man, Morris. Andrew grinned, a most significant grin. And I should wish to see your cousin, the merchant, to ask him the particulars of what he heard in London, if it could be done without much trouble. Nathan mare easy, Andrew observed. I had but a hint to his cousin that I wanted a pair of twa hose, and he would be with me as fast as he could lay leg to the ground. Oh, yes, assure him I shall be a customer, and as the night is, as you say, settled and fair, I shall walk in the garden until he comes. The moon will soon rise over the fells. You may bring him to the little back gate, and I shall have pleasure in the meantime in looking on the bushes and evergreens by the bright frosty moonlight. Very right, very right, that's what I hae often said. A kale blade or a cauliflower glances seglegly by moonlight. It's like a lady in her diamonds. So saying, off went Andrew Fairservice with great glee. He had to walk about two miles, a labour he undertook with the greatest pleasure, in order to secure to his kinsman the sale of some articles of his trade, though it is probable he would not have given him sixpence to treat him to a quart of ale. The good will of an Englishman would have displayed itself in a manner exactly the reverse of Andrew's, thought I, as I paced along the smooth-cut velvet walks, which, embowered with high hedges of yew and of holly, intersected the ancient garden of Osbaldistone Hall. As I turned to retrace my steps, it was natural that I should lift up my eyes to the windows of the old library, which, small in size but several in number, stretched along the second story of that side of the house which now faced me. Light glanced from their casements. I was not surprised at this, for I knew Miss Vernon often sat there of an evening, though from motives of delicacy I put a strong restraint upon myself, and never sought to join her at a time when I knew all the rest of the family being engaged for the evening. Our interviews must necessarily have been strictly tete-a-tete. -tete. In the mornings we usually read together in the same room, but then it often happened that one or other of our cousins entered to seek some parchment duodecimo that could be converted into a fishing-book despite its gildings and illumination, or to tell us of some sport toward, or from mere want of knowing where else to dispose of themselves. In short, in the mornings the library was a sort of public room where man and woman might meet as on neutral ground. 
In the evening it was very different, and bred in a country where much attention is paid, or was at least then paid, to bien science. I was desirous to think for Miss Vernon concerning those points of propriety where her experience did not afford her the means of thinking for herself. I made her therefore comprehend as delicately as I could that, when we had evening lessons, the presence of a third party was proper. Miss Vernon first laughed, then blushed, and was disposed to be displeased, and then, suddenly checking herself, said, I believe you are very right, and when I feel inclined to be a very busy scholar, I will bribe old Martha with a cup of tea to sit by me and be my screen. Martha, the old housekeeper, partook of the taste of the family at the hall. A toast and tankard would have pleased her better than all the tea in China. However, as the use of this beverage was then confined to the higher ranks, Martha felt some vanity in being asked to partake of it, and by dint of a great deal of sugar, many words scarce less sweet, and abundance of toast and butter, she was sometimes prevailed upon to give us her countenance. On other occasions the servants almost unanimously shunned the library after nightfall, because it was their foolish pleasure to believe that it lay on the haunted side of the house. The more timorous had seen sights and heard sounds there when all the rest of the house was quiet, and even the young squires were far from having any wish to enter these formidable precincts after nightfall, without necessity. That the library had at one time been a favourite resource of Rashleigh, that a private door out of one side of it communicated with a sequestered and remote apartment which he chose for himself, rather increased than disarmed the terrors which the household had for the dreaded library of Osbaldistone Hall. His extensive information as to what passed in the world, his profound knowledge of science of every kind, a few physical experiments which he occasionally showed off, were in a house of so much ignorance and bigotry, esteemed good reasons for supposing him endowed with powers over the spiritual world. He understood Greek, Latin, and Hebrew, and therefore, according to the apprehension, and in the phrase of his brother Wilfred, need not care for geister bar geist dobi. Yea, though the servants persisted that they had heard him hold conversations in the library, when every varsal soul in the family were gone to bed, and that he spent the night in watching for bogles, and the morning in sleeping in his bed, when he should have been heading the hounds like a true Osbaldistone. All these absurd rumours I had heard in broken hints and imperfect sentences, from which I was left to draw the inference, and, as easily may be supposed, I laughed them to scorn, but the extreme solitude to which this chamber of evil fame was committed every night after curfew time was an additional reason why I should not intrude on Miss Vernon when she chose to sit there in the evening. To resume what I was saying, I was not surprised to see a glimmer of light from the library windows, but I was a little struck when I distinctly perceived the shadows of two persons pass along and intercept the light from the first of the windows, throwing the casement for a moment into shade. It must be old Martha, thought I, whom Diana had engaged to be her companion for the evening, or I must have been mistaken and taken Diana's shadow for a second person. No, by heaven, it appears on the second window two figures distinctly traced, and now it's lost again. It is seen on the third, on the fourth, the darkened forms of two persons, distinctly seen in each window as they pass along the room, betwixt the windows and the lights. Whom can Diana have got for a companion? The passage of the shadows between the lights and the casements was twice repeated, 
as if to satisfy me that my observation served me truly, after which the lights were extinguished, and the shades, of course, were seen no more. Trifling as this circumstance was, it occupied my mind for a considerable time. I did not allow myself to suppose that my friendship for Miss Vernon had any directly selfish view, yet it is incredible the displeasure I felt at the idea of her admitting any one to private interviews at a time and in a place where, for her own sake, I had been at some trouble to show her that it was improper for me to meet with her. "'Silly, romping, incorrigible girl,' said I to myself, "'on whom all good advice and delicacy are thrown away. I have been cheated by the simplicity of her manner, which I suppose she can assume just as she could a straw bonnet were it the fashion, for the mere sake of celebrity. I suppose, notwithstanding the excellence of her understanding, the society of half a dozen of clowns to play at whisk and swabbers would give her more pleasure than if Ariosto himself were to awake from the dead. This reflection came the more powerfully across my mind, because, having mustered up courage to show to Diana my version of the first books of Ariosto, I had requested her to invite Martha to a tea-party in the library that evening, to which arrangement Miss Vernon had refused her consent, alleging some apology which I thought frivolous at the time. I had not long speculated on this disagreeable subject, when the back-garden door opened, and the figures of Andrew and his countrymen, bending under his pack, crossed the moonlit alley, and called my attention elsewhere. I found Mr. Macready, as I expected, a tough, sagacious, long-headed Scotchman, and a collector of news both from choice and profession. He was able to give me a distinct account of what had passed in the House of Commons and House of Lords on the affair of Morris, which, it appeared, had been made by both parties a touchstone to ascertain the temper of the Parliament. It appeared also that, as I had learned from Andrew by second hand, the ministry had proved too weak to support a story involving the character of men of rank and importance, and resting upon the credit of a person of such indifferent fame as Morris, who was, moreover, confused and contradictory in his mode of telling the story. McCready was even able to supply me with a copy of a printed journal or newsletter, seldom extending beyond the capital, in which the substance of the debate was mentioned, and with a copy of the Duke of Argyle's speech, printed upon a broadside, of which he had purchased several from the hawkers, because he said it would be a saleable article on the north of the Tweed. The first was a meagre statement full of blanks and asterisks, and which added little or nothing to the information I had from the Scotchman, and the Duke's speech, though spirited and eloquent, contained chiefly a panegyric on his country, his family, and his clan, with a few compliments, equally sincere perhaps, though less glowing, which he took so favourable an opportunity of paying to himself. I could not learn whether my own reputation had been directly implicated, although I perceived that the honour of my uncle's family had been impeached, and that this person Campbell, stated by Morris to have been the most active robber of the two by whom he was assailed, was said by him to have appeared in the behalf of Mr. Osbaldistone, and by the connivance of the justice procured his liberation. In this particular Morris's story jumped with my own suspicions, which had attached to Campbell from the moment I saw him appear at Justice Inglewood's. Vexed upon the whole, as well as perplexed, with this extraordinary story, I dismissed the two Scotchmen, after making some purchases from McCready, and a small compliment to fair service, and retired to my own apartment to consider what I ought to do in defence of my character, thus publicly attacked. End of Volume 1, Chapter 14 Reading by Mike Harris